This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 26. Just three verses to cover, but so much to learn. The subject of communion isn't talked about much. The mode and method are settled in most churches, and so the matter is left alone with little discussion. We just do it without much thought. But it's worth remembering the origin of this practice. And since Jesus himself commissioned communion, we can be sure it matters. So why do we celebrate communion? And what does it all mean? My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to today's message from Pastor Pierre. Let's read verses 26 through 29 of Matthew 26. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So I want to point out to you two features about this ordinance to the church. And by the way, we call it an ordinance, not a sacrament, because we know that there's nothing salvific in the elements. Just like the baptismal waters are not holy, they're not mystical, they are symbolic. So the, the bread and the blood, the elements, are meant to signify something, to represent something, which we will see here in a moment. But there are two features of this ordinance here that we must understand in order to have a fresh appreciation for it. So the two features is we must understand what Jesus is doing here. First of all, he instituted a new practice, verses 26 through 28. New because the Lord's Supper then is Christ's command to the church that is meant to replace the Passover feast. Now the ceremonial meal, which was the Passover, until then served its purpose. Until Jesus, as the Lamb of God, gave his body and shed his blood for the redemption of sinners. In other words, everything that the Passover feast symbolized is there now at that point in history. And for a greater understanding of this new practice, let's first talk about the clarification of the ordinance. Nothing in this scene or the other texts that describe the Lord's Supper, and by the way, there are Mark 14, Luke 22, and 1 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 25. We read that passage every time we celebrate communion here. But nothing in those passages hints at transubstantiation. There's nothing in the text that suggests consubstantiation even. Clearly, Christ intended to use the bread and the wine as representations of his atoning death. Now, he uses the same sentence structure to introduce other metaphors, other symbology. For example, when he says, this is my body, he's using a metaphor. He's using a figure of speech to communicate something. And that something is not that this is now becoming literally my body. And we know that because in other places, for example, Jesus says in John 6 verse 48, I am the bread of life, clearly meant to be used as a symbolic idea. I am the good shepherd, John 10, verse 11. I am the light, 
John 8, verse 12. So the elements are his body and blood only in a figurative sense. They are meant to symbolize something. Let's not miss that. And the other reason we understand that is because salvation can only happen by grace through faith, according to Ephesians 2, verse 8. So partaking of communion doesn't save anybody. It celebrates our newness of life and our oneness in Christ. It's something we do to celebrate something. It's a feast in order to celebrate our salvation. It's an ordinance that symbolizes, for example, Jesus in us. The hope of glory, that's what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 27. We have Jesus living in us. And so when we drink the cup and eat of the wafer, the bread, we are celebrating that fact. Jesus is spiritually living in us. We know where his body is in heaven, but spiritually he lives in every believer. And Paul says that's the hope of glory. So when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating that very reality, that spiritual truth that is comforting and assuring for us. And again, the elements have no salvific power. They don't save anybody. They symbolize something or a couple of things, in fact. So let's go through them and understand what they symbolize specifically. The unleavened bread, for example, in the Passover feast represented Israel's redemption from the idolatry of Egypt. And we know that because the leaven, traditionally in Scripture, signifies influence. So when the Israelites were redeemed out of Egypt, and when the Passover was instituted, they were supposed to eat unleavened bread, signifying or symbolizing that the influence of Egypt stayed there. See, God removed them out of Egypt, but also God had to remove Egypt out of them, and they would celebrate that newness of life by eating of the unleavened bread during the Passover feast. And Jesus now, therefore, uses this metaphor to represent his body, teaching us that he is the only one able to remove worldly influence from us. We need to understand that no one else qualifies. No one else is able to remove worldly influence from us. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he takes the sin away from us, The influence of sin no longer has any power in my life and in your life. And therefore, when we celebrate communion, we are celebrating the fact that we are no longer slaves to sin. We are able to not sin or to control sin. Now, we're still going to sin. The Bible is very clear about that. In fact, in 1 John, it says that if we say we have no sin, we we make God to be a liar. But when we do sin, we ask for forgiveness. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our iniquities. But the fact that we no longer have the control or the condemnation of sin in our lives is reason to celebrate. And we do this by observing the ordinance that Christ gave to the church. The one element that represents that is the unleavened bread or the the wafer that we use in communion. We understand that whoever places his or her trust in him is separated by... For and to Christ. That's another truth that we're celebrating. The fact that we are eating the unleavened bread, which represents the body of Christ. We are celebrating the fact that we have been separated for him, by him, and to him. We no longer are a part of the world, even though we are from the world. We were None of us are Martians. We were born on the earth. We are part of a culture here, but our true citizenship is in heaven. The Bible says very clearly. So that is what the uh, bread symbolizes when we celebrate communion. 
Now, the other element, the blood of the Paschal Lamb prefigured the only blood accepted by the Father for the remission of sins. The cup, therefore, and by, when we say the cup, I hope you understand we're talking about the content of the cup, which is the fruit of the vine, the grape juice here in the Lord's Supper, symbolizes that act, the act of the shedding of the blood of Christ. Now, we've covered this a few weeks ago. The question is, why did the Father have to put Christ through this horrifying death on the cross instead of just causing his heart to stop beating? And the answer is, the Bible says very clearly, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And when you see Christ and you have the picture of Christ shedding his blood on the cross, there is no question that he died Now, if he had just had a heart attack or simply stopped breathing, people could have said, well, no, he just passed out. And then he woke up later and walked out of the grave, which, by the way, people still insist on that garbage today. Once Jesus gave up his life on the cross, he eliminated, therefore, the need for the Passover lambs because he's saying, I am that Passover lamb. Those animals, all the way from when the Passover was instituted in the book of Exodus until that last Passover merely foreshadowed the shedding of Christ's blood. So there is no more need to celebrate the Passover. Now, You've heard me say this before when we studied the book of Revelation, that in the millennial kingdom, the sacrifices will be reinstituted as memorials. So that's a topic of another study. We can talk about that later. But every Passover feast, after the one recorded in Matthew 26, misses the point and is therefore unauthorized by God. Because Jesus says, the need for them is over. Because I am here. I am the Lamb of God. I am shedding my blood. I'm giving my body to be crucified for the remission of sins, for the many. He says here, therefore, there's no more need for the shadow of that to be observed because the real thing is here. And by mentioning the cup, Jesus connected his crucifixion with Exodus 24, verse 8, which reads this. So Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance to all of these words. Now the imagery here is unmistakable. Moses ratified the old covenant with the shedding of animal blood. Now, Jesus, fulfilling the role of the sacrificial lamb, ratified the new covenant because, in fact, the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 8, verse 8, that Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant. Now, why is it better, church? Because he is the lamb of God. He is the paschal lamb who is giving his life for the remission of sins. In other words, everything pointed to Jesus Christ up until that point, but In Matthew 26, that very act of redeeming of sinners, which was planned by God before even the foundation of the world, is taking place in history. So that is the better covenant. And the author of Hebrews helps us understand that. Now Luke observes that Christ called this the new covenant. Luke 22, verse 20. It's the new covenant because it fulfills God's promise to Israel in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, which reads, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And the good news about this church is that that new covenant is not only for the house of Judah and for the house of Israel, but for everyone who believes. And Jesus is very clear about that, for the remission of sins for many now, the author of Hebrews helps us understand this concept even more. He writes this in Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, For the law 
since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things can never by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered because the worshippers having once been cleansed would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So what scripture tells us, church, is that it is impossible for the blood of animals to take away sins because they only represent, they symbolize the shedding of the blood of Christ, who is the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He takes away the sin of the world because he takes it upon himself, the wrath of God. So when Christ died on the cross and shed his blood, he is taking the punishment that you and I deserve, the punishment for our sins. Now, what does that mean for us, you ask? Again, the author of Hebrews helps us understand chapter 10, verses 19 through 24. Therefore, brethren, he says, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Luke gives us an example of how the early church honored the ordinance of communion in the assembling together of the body of Christ. He writes that the believers were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of the bread and to prayer. This is Acts 2 verse 42. So we have the example from the early church of what we are supposed to do when we come together to celebrate our newness of life, to celebrate exactly that, drawing near to God with a sincere heart, full of assurance and faith and all of that. When we come together, we devote ourselves to the teaching of the apostles and the teaching of the apostles has been codified for us. They have been inscripturated for us. We have here a record of their teaching and we fellowship together, which we will do after this service. And we break bread, which means we celebrate communion and we pray together. Therefore, understanding all of this, believers should never replace corporate worship with casual or informal Bible study, we must assemble together in a local church with a clearly identifiable leadership and a clearly identifiable body of Christ. Whether we meet in a building or under a tree, I've done both. We must assemble together in a local church and we celebrate our great salvation and we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. So there you have it. If you're a believer and you do not attend a local Bible-believing church to assemble with other believers, what then should you do? You should find a local church that teaches the Bible, not one that teaches the opinion of the pastor or the one that is dedicated to politics or exegeting the society or, or culture. Find a local church where the leadership of that church honors the preaching of the Word of God and honors the ordinances of the church, one of which is baptism. The other one is the Lord's Supper that we are talking about here. 
But that was the clarification of the ordinance here. Let's talk about the context of the ordinance. There's a lot that went on in that last Passover meal here in the upper room. The other gospels fill in the, the blanks here. And the reason why it's good for us to understand that is because Matthew does not write chronologically. Remember this, okay? Matthew is all over the place here in terms of chronology here, because his point is to communicate that Jesus is the King of Kings, the King of the Jews, so he will write different anecdotes of the life of Christ that are not necessarily in chronological order. We've already determined that, and we verify that several times during our study of the Gospel of Matthew. But in this last few days of Jesus' life here, there's a lot, for example, that John records for us that is within the context of the last Supper here, the place or the time when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. So again, we're going to put those pieces together and we're going to learn a lot here. And as we're putting those pieces together, it's a wonderful and glorious jigsaw puzzle. For example, first of all, according to John 13, verse 30, Judas left the group because Satan entered him. The Bible says Lucifer himself entered Judas. But it's interesting to note that Judas is not there because neither the devil nor false believers belong to the Lord's table. And we understand immediately that communion is a very exclusive event. In verse 28, it invites the many, but not everyone. Paul clarifies in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 28. He says this, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Actually, that's verse 27, and that is something important for us to understand because Paul is educating that church in Corinth about how to observe communions, and, and some of them were observing communion in an unworthy manner. There were unbelievers participating in the Lord's table. There were people getting drunk and going to church and celebrating the Lord's table, and there were people who refused to partake with other ethnicities in the church. So Paul says, pay attention closely. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner shall be guilty. Now, who's supposed to partake of communion? People who have received Christ as their Lord and Savior. Because if they don't have Jesus in their hearts, what's there to celebrate? They're doing something that has no meaning for them. They don't understand. Now, it is our desire that they come to faith in Christ so that they can celebrate communion. But until they understand what the gospel is and what it is that they're being saved from and what the body of Christ and the blood of Christ signifies for them, they shouldn't participate. Now, what happens next is an interesting development here of the story because they are celebrating communion. And what they do is they immediately start arguing to see who's the greatest in the kingdom. Again, see, Matthew 16, we dealt with that. And now Luke tells us that they are arguing to see who is the greatest in the kingdom in the upper room. And probably what prompted the discussion was the announcement of the betrayal. They were saying, well, I'm not going to betray Christ because I'm the greatest in the kingdom. Maybe you are because you're less than me here. Jesus settled the whole argument with a rhetorical question, which would remind him of the foot washing experience. Luke 22, verse 27. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? And what Jesus is saying here, you really want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Serve everybody else. And therefore, church, every time we celebrate communion, we must be reminded of that Christ-like servanthood that we are called upon to do. Now, here's what happened next. After this gentle rebuke, Christ comforted the disciples. So they were arguing to see who's the greatest. They are anxious. They are experiencing grief. 
confusion. One of the disciples left. What happened? Is he the betrayer? What's going on here? And Jesus comforted them. Specifically, he comforts one of them. Luke 22, verses 31 through 32, he says this, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Wow, what a comforting thought. Now imagine, church, learning that the devil is after you. Imagine that thought. Now imagine no more because that's exactly what he does. The Bible says, in fact, Peter tells us that Satan is after believers. He says, be a sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, obviously, he learned his lesson here. His faith did not fail. We understand exactly what happened. Well, not to get ahead of the story here, but he denied Christ three times, and later on, he repented, and God still used him in ministry. Now, by the way, would you ever recruit anyone who denied you three times? Jesus kept comforting the disciples in the midst of their confusion, fear, stress, anxiety, pride. They were arguing to see who's the greatest. Then Jesus says this. This is what happened next. John 14, verses 1 through 2. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So when Jesus tells the disciples, do not... Let your heart be troubled. The question is, should we appropriate those promises? And their answer is a resounding yes. We should appropriate these comforting words, even though they were uttered to that first generation of disciples after the Lord's Supper. And the reason for that, church, is because Jesus said, I am pouring my blood for the forgiveness of sin for the benefit of many. Many is a little more than 11. So, church, the lesson is very clear. For us, do not fear. Do not fear. Our enemy is fierce, and this life brings us many challenges. But we have the promises, we have the peace, the protection, and the prayers of our Savior. So the context of the first Lord's Supper in history brings us comfort and joy. All of these things took place between verses 29 and verse 30 of Matthew 29. And speaking of verse 29 of Matthew, let's finish the lesson today by talking about a noble promise. We talked about a new practice. That's what the ordinance to the church is. It's a new practice. Uh, But there's also an element that is the noble promise of Christ. Verse 29, he says, I will drink it again with you. I will partake again with you one day in the kingdom. Now, Matthew omits this, but Luke confirms that Jesus instructed the disciples to celebrate communion in remembrance of him. This is something we do to celebrate Christ, to remind us of Jesus Christ, something that years later Paul also confirmed to the Corinthians, as we have already verified. So we memorialize the redemptive sacrifice of Jesus when we celebrate communion. So we look to the past, looking, you know, 2,000 years ago when that took place in history, when Christ gave himself up for us and across. We look to to the present. The Bible says, examine yourselves. But we also look to the future because Jesus promised in verse 29, we will do this again together one day in the kingdom. Which means that um, he's probably promising the 11 disciples that there will be a reenactment of that one communion service sometime in the millennial kingdom, possibly soon after the return of Christ. Or most likely, another possibility is that we, as the body of Christ, will continue to celebrate communion after Christ establishes his reign on the earth. We will celebrate that in the millennium. 
And the, the difference is that Jesus will be present physically with us. Now, these words of promise would have overflowed the hearts of the disciples with comfort. Now, Jesus already told them that he would prepare a place for them. But now he says, not only am I going to prepare a place for you, I'm going to set the table for you. I'm going to serve you. Which means that not only this is a confirmation that we will, in our glorified bodies, when we get to the kingdom, we will be able to digest food. By the way, think about that for a moment. We're not going to be ghosts. In case, see, that's what the world wants us to believe, that we're going to be ghosts, disembodied spirits floating around clowns forever and ever. You, you, a ghost cannot eat bread or drink wine. It goes right through. We will have a glorified body that can digest food, but even more than that, our fellowship with him and other believers will not be hindered by sin, by fear, by stress, anxiety, or lack of forgiveness. So you will sit at the table with your fellow believer in Christ whom you have a grudge against. So think about that. Forgive him or her today in celebration of that glorious banquet. And I hope this promise comforts you too. Every time we celebrate communion, every Sunday that we celebrate communion, let that be a countdown for that glorious day. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. And I'll remind you that we have several books available now, all based on pastor sermon series. Revelation, Unveiling God's Plan for Humanity, Ruth and the Kindness of God, and Kingdom Parables, 12 Signposts to Guide You Through Turbulent Times are all great resources, and they help support the ministry of Truth With Grace. Visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, to get your copies today. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it, or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time... This is Truth with Grace.